Hello, hello. Welcome back to another sassy episode of Lee2B, the sassiest podcast for B2B. I'm your host, Lee Moskowitz, your marketing friend. Today, we have Stephen Arthur George, founder at Kaya Creative. Steve is the financial maven turned cannabis trailblazer. Originally from Michigan, Stephen honored his financial prowess in Nashville, specializing in sales and marketing. His journey took an exciting turn in 2017 when he moved to Portugal, earning an MBA and delving into the European cannabis industry. At Tilray, one of the cannabis giants, Stephen wore multiple hats, serving as an alliance manager and doing many, many things there. In 2021, Stephen embraced independence, launching into Cannabis Commercial Strategy Consultant. Join us as we explore his unique transition and insights into the ever-evolving world of finance and cannabis on Lee2B. Are you a Steve or Steven? Steve. It's perfect. Okay, I'll call you Steve now. All right. I kind of did both in the in- intro, not knowing which one you prefer. But yeah, thank All you good. so much for, for coming on here. And you're coming in from Portugal, right? You're in Lisbon? That's correct. Lisbon, Portugal. Woo. Yeah, I'm doing like an international tour. So far, we've had a guest from Barcelona. Yesterday, I talked to someone in UK. We had Canada. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to spread out. Uh, I like but it. I am super excited for this because I have so many questions for you. To start, I'd love to just, you know, quickly start from how you got into cannabis from finance, because that, that's a big job, or is it? Yeah, let's see. They kind of meld together in, in, in different ways. But but yeah, I mean, you know, I'm originally from Michigan. I grew up there, stayed there through university, and then moved down to Tennessee, which is where I started in my finance career. So spent five years there, but then got to a point where I you know, wasn't enjoying my work any longer and was looking to pivot and actually ended up deciding to take the easy way out and go for an MBA. And it was in this transition through the MBA that got me here to Portugal, which was right at the time that the medical cannabis industry was starting to develop in about 2017 here in Europe. So it was one of those things where the timing was right. I was in the right space. I had some previous experience back from North America and the, the stars aligned, let's say. And so you went to to Portugal for your MBA? Correct. Was like, did the school have the program you want or did you just like, I need to get out of the U.S.? It was more just get out of the U.S., you know? Um, <laughs> also, cost was part of the, the, the decision making as well. I didn't want to go into debt to go back to school and... Things were a bit more affordable here in, in, in Europe and still being able to get a good education. But but yeah, I mean, the reality of it was it was more of a pivot to get out of the finance industry. And I like I said, I like to say the easy way, the easy way out. So instead of just going straight out and doing nothing and then trying to start from scratch, I said, OK, let's let's do an MBA and and give myself some time to, to rethink this. Nice. Well, I, I don't think anyone else has called an MBA the easy way out before. So, uh, but I'll, I'll let you have that. Uh, I don't like I don't like my my guests humble themselves. Now nah, you earn that. But let's go into actually what cannabis commercialization means. Like, yes, I what it sounds like, but what it, what does it actually entail? Like, what what are the processes? What are some of the things? Like, and explain like I'm five version of of that. Right. So. It's 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 complicated, right? But here in in Europe, 
you know, they're treating cannabis as a medicine, right? So it's only medical cannabis regulations. There is no real adult use commercialization like you see in, in many of the North America or many of the U.S. states and, and in Canada as well. So that being said, it's, it's still a medicine, right? And so actually communicating with consumers is quite difficult and, and quite heavily regulated. But within the B2B space, Okay, a lot of what's happening in many of the countries is that the the group or company who's actually distributing the products or selling them to the pharmacy, which then send, sells on to the, the patient, the cultivators or producers or manufacturers are then selling to these distributors. So that ends up being their customer, right? So for a lot of the cultivators and manufacturers, who aren't putting in their own branded products, they don't have a commercial strategy to put their own branded products in a market, are basically then just suppliers and then need to work with distributors in their their jurisdiction that they're looking to target. So that's where most of my work is around is, is on the commercial side of the business to business aspect of the business and cultivators and manufacturers selling to distributors. So, and again, this is, it's gotta be a hard answer, but how do you do that? Cause you mentioned the, like the regulations and like I work in marketing advertising. I know that like all these platforms, they have very specific policies you can technically advertise like a cannabis company, but like the landing page can't contain like weed. I don't know if it can say cannabis and correct me if I'm wrong. And it's been updated for, for medicinal, but like you can get around it by saying like flower or like promoting the product for it. Is that still the case? Correct. You know, there's a lot of different ways, right? And, and that's where it really gets interesting here in the medical space too, because the regulations get much um, more strict, let's say, when you're actually producing a finished product, right? So if you're going to market any finished products on your, let's say, website or on your social channels, this is really hard to do unless you can somehow gate the content and make sure that only healthcare professionals are seeing it, right? So yeah, it, it's complicated in that sense. But then, as you said, you know, you have to be creative and you have to find different ways to work around it. And, and a lot of that, you know, from a company standpoint, even in the B2B space can be talking more about processes, um, cultivation techniques, um, genetics, you know, different things like this that still then, you know, provide that funnel to then drive people back to whatever you're trying to get them to do, right? And if that's reach out for a conversation or or whatever it might be, then you're you're driving them to that call to action. But yeah, you got to be creative and you got to be flexible. Um, and when it comes to like the actual consumer side, like you said, then it gets even even more complicated, both in the medical space and and even in the the adult use space, but even more heavily regulated when it's considered a medicine. Yeah, and so like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of what you're describing is like it's it's a focus on B to B, but it's it's really kind of like B to B to C in a sense, because like you like you yourself, and I'm gonna just like you're you're the company can't advertise and market to the consumer as much but on the b2b side you're, you're that that's where you start i i imagine uh exactly. is that about right or yeah yeah exactly so 
I know at Tilray you did a lot with alliances and partnerships. So I imagine when you can market the traditional ways in a lot of sense that those partnerships become even more important, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 that's what you live and die by really in this industry right now, right? Because let's say you are a cultivator or or a manufacturer of either, you know, a dried flower product or maybe even you're doing an oil type of thing, you know, but if again, if your commercial strategy does not ensure or or entail the fact of going to market with a, a branded product, you know, then like I said, you're you're totally reliant on this B2B network to then to get your product to the actual consumer, right? So mm-hmm. these partners end up becoming, you know, an, an extension of your sales team, more or less, right? Because and that's why having a, a partner that not only is a a strong partner in the space, but also a partner that's able that has their own strong relationships with pharmacies and, and uh, the, the, the next chain of the the supply chain, right? To then make sure that they can move good volumes of product. Because if they if they're not able to, then you're gonna struggle to make sales as a as a cultivator and a manufacturer. So you don't have an infinite pool of of gotcha. potential partners when you're in cannabis. You, especially when it's medicinal. How do you go about actually finding it and continuing that program when y- your potential audience is? No. So in the, in the thing is, like I said, in the, the medical space, you know, being more heavily regulated, it is challenging because to to be a part of this industry based on the country that you're in and the jurisdiction, you will need some type of licensing, even if you're just a simple distribu- distributor, right? So you're still going to need certain licenses to deal with narcotics. And and then that means you're dealing with health, health regulators, which means things don't move so quickly. So yeah, the, the pool, let's say, is only so big. Now, at the same time, it is a growing industry, right? And so you're seeing you know, new companies coming on board and getting licensed all the time. You know, for example, here in Portugal alone, they just published the other week. And, you know, there's there's something like um, 150 licenses that are pending, right? So for different types of activities within the space, but then this is similar in other countries. So the industry is growing. So you're having more players come on on, on board, right? Which then broadens the the opportunity. But the most important part is that it always comes back to the patients, right? Because patient population is at the end of the day, the end consumer, right? So if your market is capped at, you know, X amount of patients, then the market's only so big. So the only way you grow the market is by growing the patient population. Although in the beat, like like you, you had mentioned it earlier, Although for a lot of these cultivators and manufacturers without their own finished products, although their customer is technically these distributors, they still have to be very conscious of what the end consumer is looking for, right? And not be totally reliant on their B2B partners for that, but also following up with trends and understanding what consumers are looking for so that they can make sure that they're producing the products that are are in demand. So is that is that what you do? And I mean, I'm sure you do so much, but is that what you do when you're consulting? What is what is your consulting services look like for these companies? Exactly. So that's that's one of the things that I do, you know. And I, 
depending on how I, I work with clients a, a few different ways, you know, sometimes it's just if purely advising and more strategy calls. Other times I'm more involved, you know, one of the companies I'm working with right now, I, I'm their fractional sales director. So working with them more, more directly, but yeah, but this is all a part of what I try to speak to in my work, because what I've noticed from the last five years working in this industry is that we've seen a lot of companies already come and go. And it's in a lot of times it's, it's not because uh, they weren't able to produce cannabis or um, they totally had their projections wrong. You know, like it's not some of these just like, um, I don't know, let's say more normal mistakes that you might see. A lot of companies just built facilities and, and cultivation and manufacturing off this idea that like it's cannabis and it will sell itself. Right. And never really stopping to think like, okay, you know, what, what is the real size of the market? What, you know, really backing into it, understanding, okay. And for what products that we're, that we're looking to produce, what does that market look like? And of that market size, what do we believe we're able to capture of that? And then using all this information to then build the facility that then meets that demand. And then, okay, then once you get established in the industry, you can have opportunity to expand, right? And and expand your facility and bring on more production and, and grow. But if from the start, you're able to produce, you know, let's say, I don't know, there, there's some, you know, many facilities here in Portugal that are able to produce, just to give you an example, you know, 10 tons of cannabis a year, where the biggest market in Europe right now is Germany, and they're importing, let's say around, you know, roughly around, maybe four, maybe 30, 40 tons this year. So if one company can supply a quarter of the market, there's a huge problem, right? And Mm -hmm. if more companies continue to come online with that capacity, you're just not going to be able to survive. So, so where I'm trying to get involved is most companies have not taken the time to then focus on their commercial strategy and what they're doing until it's far too late. So my, um, idea and, and, and what I really offer and sell to people is that this is a conversation that needs to be from the start and, and even prior to you know, uh, deciding what size your facility is going to be and et cetera. This should all, this commercial strategy should really build into the business case and, and have input on everything that you do from the start. Yeah, it's kind of like when like a company is like, yeah, we're a company. Let's go buy an office space um, to, to that's nice and fancy and show off the clients. Uh, and now you have tons of overhead, but you don't have the clients. And then exactly. you go down. Yes. Yeah, so how... How does it work from from country to country in, in, in Europe? Does does each one have their own kind of policies that you have to be mindful of, or is there a general EU type thing? There's some stuff that's at like a European level, right? And even some stuff that's at a, more of a global level. Like when it comes to you know the the importation and exportation of cannabis which is actually the quite unique thing that's different than what's going on in let's say the United States right where most of the cannabis that's being produced within a state remains within that state right and that's actually how it's supposed to happen uh, as the industry works there's definitely cannabis moving to different states but legally it's supposed to remain in the state where where it was produced right 
there is no law because there's no federal law. There's no ability to move cannabis across borders whatsoever. Where when you look at the global medical space, like I said, you are dealing with the health regulators in the different countries. So yes, Portugal's regulations look different than Germany's regulations. Okay. But from like an import export standpoint, the processes is all pretty general. So regardless if you're going to the UK or if you're going to Israel or if you're going to Germany or if you're going to Australia, you know, the health regulator in the importing country will issue an import permit for these um, the amount of narcotics. And then the exporting country regulator will issue an export permit for those narcotics. So there's some communication between the regulators that needs to take place. And this is more of a, a global understanding of the, the import and export of narcotic drugs that, that mm-hmm. needs to be followed. But, but then yes, within the countries and how they regulate their, their programs within the actual jurisdiction and how you get a prescription and what documentation is needed to register a product and all this stuff um, is different country to country. How the hell do you keep up with that with, with so many rules? Because one, they're, I feel like they're constantly changing or being updated. Uh, like how, how the hell do you keep up with all these different rules for different countries like, like that? It's, it's quite difficult, right? Um, and, but at the same time, it's, 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 it's comes from experience, right? So the more I work in the space and the more, I work with these different countries and understand the processes, then things start to to make more sense and you and you understand how different markets work and how different markets need to communicate with each other and how the different regulatory bodies communicate with each other. But but yeah, it's one of those things that comes with experience, right? And why, you know, I, I moved more into the consulting space as well, because you know, when you get in a very niche industry like this with, you know, limited amount of of lifetime let's say then your 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 knowledge is almost like exponentially valuable right because it's so new that people haven't been gathering this knowledge for a long time it's it's a lot of the stuff you know like some of those first the shipments that i did here from portugal to germany were were some were the first large exports of medical cannabis ever right so it's wow. like when you do stuff that no one's done before, then you get to, you, you, you learn, right? Mm-hmm. And so you said it's such a new category. When this happens and there's there's new and it's niche, you get a lot of the fake people. Like everybody claims they're like, it's so new, but like everyone claims they're an expert. You have obviously the distinction of, of working at Tilray, which is like literally one of the biggest. I don't even know what I'm really going with this because, again, I'm riffing, but, like, I've seen just so many people being like, hey, like, I am an expert here, blah, right. blah, 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 blah. And then to to your point, it's like, n- no, they're not. They don't know the policies. They don't know all this stuff. So I guess talk a little bit how you, you brought your industry knowledge from, from working at Tilray and then transitioning to consulting. And it's, 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 it's also another difficult part of the industry, right? Because whenever you do have a new industry that also is, is something, you know, that involves a product that is, is in high demand, meaning that there's a lot of money involved, then you get people from every corner of the, the world, right? And, and, and some of them great people, Others really not great people, right? And and with the wrong intentions. So, 
so that's been a challenge this whole entire time um navigating this industry right is 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 trying to find the right people that are in it for for the right reasons um and 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 actually my time at Tilray helped with that a lot because you know what the approach you know the the, the team here in Europe was a was a primarily european team i was one of the only non-european members very pharmaceutical focused, a lot of pharmaceutical background. So I really learned a lot from the people that I worked with there because they didn't come from the cannabis space, right? And and really lacked, you know, some of the knowledge around cannabis culture and product and and things like this, but they really had that strong knowledge and expertise on the pharmaceutical side. And you needed really both for this to work. You couldn't do it if you just had cannabis knowledge and you couldn't do it if you just had pharmaceutical knowledge, right? You really needed this this blend of the two. And it's actually probably been, I would argue, maybe one of the industry's most difficult challenges, right? Is because a lot of the knowledge and experience, especially when it comes to the cultivation side of things, lies within an underground market and you know comes with from a lot of people who don't come from the corporate side of the world right and don't have you know oftentimes the the business education and experience you know running larger companies or or running companies at all for that matter so there there's there's been this this divide because then you do have people that have come to the industry good people that believe in cannabis believe in the benefits and in, in allowing people to access it have great business industry knowledge to bring to the table but then lack the cannabis knowledge and culture and understanding of the space so there's always been this kind of friction let's say between these two parties but like Ultimately, I've kind of, you know, realized that the the only way this industry survives is if they find a way to work together. So it's still one of the main challenges, but also it's quite fascinating to watch. And it's also why I think I do okay in this industry is because I'm able to kind of, I I have this corporate background, um, but at the same time, I've I've been a big advocate of cannabis and around cannabis for, for over a decade. So I, I I can bridge the gap a bit. Yeah, I, I mean, you you clearly have the differentiator there. So in so in the U.S., pharma is, is pretty like you, we can advertise anywhere. You, you see billboards for pharma. You see commercials for for drugs, pills like that. Most other countries, like you, don't see commercials for pharma. Like how how right. is it in Portugal? Same. Yeah. There's no, there's no commercials, right. That you, you see, especially for prescription drugs. I think there's some stuff that you might see like over the counter, but nothing, nothing for, for prescription drugs. So, and I think that's pretty much blanket across, across Europe. So like, is, is medical cannabis like kind of considered the same or, or similar to how pharma would operate? Or is there even more red tape than that? It's 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 the interesting thing about the 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 medical cannabis industry here in Europe, or one of the the more interesting things, let's say, that's you know far different from what we've seen in North America, um, because 
what they did here and what they're doing in many of these countries, like I said, they're working through the local health regulator. So that like here in Portugal is called Infarmed, but it's like the equivalent of the FDA. So it's basically like you're working with the FDA, right? So, so then everything is regulated by them. Everything, like I said, is being dispensed, you know, whether it's here in Portugal, UK, Germany, it's all going through the pharmacy. There's no like dispensary type models that exist. So then everything is, and then like when it comes to even like the specifications of the product, like everything refers back to the European pharmacopoeia. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's really pharma, but at the same that time, was pharmacopoeia, like cornucopia pharmacopoeia exactly okay so yeah so it's like so everyone's following this traditional pharma um pathway if you will but then also you know has which which has also made things extremely complicated as well because especially when dealing with dried flour and this like goes into the weeds a little bit but could be interesting unintended. exactly when you have medicines okay for example, let's just say you have like a thousand milligram ibuprofen, right? Pain medication. I don't know exactly what it's like in the FDA and how they do it in the US, but here in Europe, the pharmacopoeia would say that like each one of those products needs to be within 90 to 100% of the label claim. So if it says that it's like a thousand milligram pill, if they tested that pill somewhere, it would need to have between 900 milligrams in a in 1100 milligrams of the active ingredient right if it didn't it would technically be like out of spec okay so that's just a pill where they're like you know putting it in this huge drum of powder and then mixing it all together and then smashing them together and so there's a bit more simplicity when it comes to making things homogeneous you know um and making sure that the product is each of those pills is is as close as they can to that thousand milligram mark. When you're dealing with fl- cannabis flowers, dried flowers, this the active ingredient ends up becoming, let's say, THC. Okay, so then if your THC percent is 25, say you're growing a a, a strain and you know your average THC percent is 25 percent. In most countries, you'd have to register the product like you would another medicine, right? And say that, okay, the label claim is 25%, which means you need to grow within 22.5 and 27.5%, right? To then fall into that window of the registration. Well, this is quite difficult to do on a consistent basis over and over and over again, right? Because it's a plant. And depending on, you know, if you're growing indoor, it's easier to keep things consistent, right? But if you're growing in a greenhouse, which a lot of the licensed, you know, producers are doing here in in Portugal, then you know you have cloudy days, you have sunny days, so the cycles are going to be different, right? And the and it's and you're going to have more of a risk of this running out of spec. So, like I said, a bit of a into the weeds conversation there, but yeah, so it's like you're taking a dried flower. And you're really trying to adhere it to these pharmaceutical regulations. Yeah. And like, so like growing cannabis, and it, yes, yes, it could be the same strain, but everything's going to be a little, a little different when you, when you grow it, you, even if it's the same seeds, the same plants, same way, 
like they're it's flour it's a, a bit different kind of like you know every carrot's not the same exact carrot right. on the other hand though like the the carts and i don't know if um the right. oils the vapes right, right. are popular there those like i'm looking at my box right now i see thc 83.32 percent uh i see cbd 0.26 percent cbg i don't even know what that means cbg 2.77 percent and then it does like the mercine stuff like that. So the these get yeah. pretty exact. I I don't believe them a lot of times. Like I right. think they're like BS, and <laughs> especially because I see like things labeled as a certain strain, and I'm like, there's no way this was the strain. Right. So like I take these with a grain of salt. Maybe I shouldn't, but yeah, like on the carts, they get exact. Is that is that there too? Exactly. So it's like, and, and you don't really have the like. There's some carts that are getting into the UK. But like in Germany and in some of the other countries, you don't see them yet. But what you are seeing is like a lot of oils, right? So just like a formulated oil with, could be THC, could be CBD, could be whatever. Um, but then it's a formulated oil that then, you know, people are taking sublingually like drops, right? And again, like with those cards and with the oils, it's 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 a bit easier than dried flour because like that cart like what they did at the manufacturing facility is they they did the extraction and then they made some formulation right so they and when they made that formulation it was like a big drum you know that then they filled who knows maybe a thousand cartridges right but they mixed that that formulation up for a long time to try to get it very homogeneous so that then if you tested any of those cartridges from that batch, they should have a similar percentage as what's on your box, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what should should happen. Now, in the States, though, that's the thing is like, I don't know. So just a step back. So then if that was here in Europe, say that they said that like the label claim was 80% THC, then it would need to be every time within 72% and 88%, right? To be like registered. But I don't know actually how the states, like how tight they get when they require, like what they require from a registration standpoint, okay? Like I, mm-hmm. so that's what I don't know about the actual states. I don't know it's granular into that, but I don't think they're, I'm, I'm 99% sure they have none of this, like uh, it needs to be, within 90 to 110 percent like one batch could come out at 70 percent the next batch could come out at 90 percent the next batch could come out at 80 percent as long as they put the actual tested sample tested percentage on that you know box and batch then they find and they release it to the market and it goes to dispensaries and you know you pick it up and have it at home right so there's still regulation in place, I know, within the U.S. states, but it's not nearly as as tight and and restrictive, let's say, as as the pharmaceutical regulations here in or in Europe. Yeah. Do you do you foresee recreational coming in a few years, next decade for Portugal, Europe, or do you do you think it's going to be longer than that? <clears throat> Let's see, you know, I mean, I, I really think it's going to take longer. I, there, there was a lot of hype here the last couple of years because Germany had been talking about and they have a coalition government that came together and they said that they were going to legalize and commercialize cannabis. And then last year they kind of like started to put together their draft regulation and then were super confident. And then they sent it to the, the European Commission for like approval. 
And then after that, then like they waited and then nothing really happened. And then a few months later, they came out and basically said like they were changing the model and no longer, it it was no longer like a commercialization. It was more of a, you can grow some plants at home. You can carry, you know, whatever, a few grams on you. More of a decriminalization than an actual regulated commercial market, right? So they really pulled back on that. And I think that's because the, you know, the European Union is still so tied into the, 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 you know, the UN and, and this is the big challenge. And even like that, even Canada had to go through and the federal, even the U S federal government would have to go through, but it's like, everyone signed the UN convention saying that like, you would only use narcotics for research and medical purposes. So you have to like go against the UN convention, which is a treaty everyone signed, you know? So like as a large, big, you know, like countries like Germany to go against the convention is like a big deal. And then it causes Mm -hmm. all these other little problems and it gets complicated, right? So this is what really hangs everything up from a a federal standpoint. So I don't know. I I mean, like I said, I'm I'm still like now Germany, now they're going to do some social clubs, they said. So like they're still going to try to roll out some stuff, which I think is still really good for the industry. And it helps, you know, increase awareness and kind of lower stigma and get closer to that, you know, federal regulation. But yeah, I still think it's going to be some, some time. And then same here with like Portugal, they've talked about it. There's been some draft bills that have already been introduced to parliament, but the big hang up here in Portugal is that in the early two thousands, they decriminalized everything. So like all drugs are decriminalized here in Portugal for like personal use. So there's like some small amount of basically like any drug, you know, even heroin and whatever that you could have on you as a person and it not be a criminal offense. So they kind of always lean on this as like, hey, we already did our job, you know, like we're not calling them criminals anymore. But if they want to if they want to smoke weed, they can get it on the street and, you know, find their own stuff and, and don't have to don't need a quality clean product. Right. And so like that's the push here in Portugal is like de- like decriminalization is decriminalization is is a great step in the right direction and it really is a in for what Portugal did i think it's super um you know they were at the very forefront right and and i and i commend them for what they did to stop looking at people as as criminals and especially people using harder drugs and start looking at them as as people who are sick and need help and not need to be thrown in jail right so I really think they took an amazing perspective on on drug policy. But then it's like that next step is saying like, okay, we don't believe you're criminals, but also as a government, we believe that you you know you should be able to access quality, safe products, right? Yeah. And that's the next the next step. So still pushing here in Portugal, but yeah, I, I think. I don't know. I think everyone wants, you know, the U.S. government to do something and, and every, all eyes are kind of on the, the, the federal government in the U.S. and everyone's kind of just dancing around and and waiting. But I still think, yeah, I think we're we're still five, ten years, you know, away yeah. from from it, I think. I mean, it all comes down to money. Once there's enough street drugs and once people figure out how much money you can make, uh, like that that really made the difference in the U.S., in my opinion. But I have to do my one rant because you made me think of it. I, I do like one rant an episode at Go least. For it. Let it but rip. I have to talk about the war on drugs 
and the sheer nonsense of it from the U.S. that start all the problems. Right. So I have to read my favorite quote about the war on drugs. You probably know this. This was from John something who was assistant to some president of domestic affairs under Nixon. Mm-hmm. And here's the this is a fake quote. Here's here's the quote. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Exactly. And I'm very familiar with that with that quote. And and it's exactly what happened, Lee. You know, like if you really look back at the history of it, and I I've done a you know a few presentations on this, but when you look at cannabis, you know, it's crazy because it really, it was really hemp. Like that's the crazy part that it was, it was hemp. That was really the big threat to a lot of the larger industry leaders in the U S and big tycoons back in the early 1900s. And hemp was the big threat. So, you know, at the same time, you also had a lot of immigration coming from Mexico and a lot of them were smoking marijuana, which is where, and if you look at it like, man, it's crazy if you look back, because then the first, the first law that came into place was the Marijuana Tax Act, you know, and then it included both hemp and, and really cannabis in general. Um, but they used the discrimination discrimination against the, the the immigrants moving into the country and consuming cannabis to then be able to bring hemp into the whole story and then you know pass the marijuana tax act and and that was basically the start of you know the war the war on drugs and here we are you know nearly a, a century later and it's still the same the same story. Ugh. Nixon and Reagan ruined everything, but I, I digress, and I will shift to my next segment, which is Spill the Tea with Lee. That's right, this is the sassiest podcast for B2B, and it's going to get juicy. So, Steve, I am curious, what was the biggest cultural shock? You you grew up in Michigan, you worked in Nashville, and then you're in Portugal. Biggest cultural shock? I think the 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 old the oldness if you will of 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 portugal and the the slower pace of of life was kind of the biggest shift for for me and and almost like this um i i think one of the things i i really disliked about the living in the u.s especially in michigan was like the amount of rules okay like it all, and, I, and i grew up in a house with a lot of rules as well so i didn't like rules you know and and there's something here about Portugal, like I said, an older country, uh, a quieter country, uh, a lot of coastal, a coastal country that just, you know, has this, um, I don't know, there's just less rules, you know, so I, I live a bit more of a, a free life here, let's say. Um, and yeah, and that was a bit of a bit of a shock, but a, a welcomed, a very welcomed shock and and something that I've grown to love over the years. I, so, I, I mean, I'm interviewing these days. Every job posting, like, requires you to have explicit experience in that exact field for, right. for a decade. On entry-level jobs, you don't have that restriction, obviously. But what would you say to somebody who is looking to break into the world of cannabis from that B2B standpoint? You know, it's, 
it's funny, but I would say, you know, it's kind of it's how we came across each other as well, right? Is is LinkedIn and and it's a big part of what I do and and in my business, you know, in, in my business and in my B2B outreach and my everyday business activity really is 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 a lot about LinkedIn, right? So it's 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 one of the things that I I recommend for everyone, you know, like um there's so many social platforms out there and a lot of them you know, like, especially, like I said, when it comes to business and it comes to finding jobs and, and being inspired, you know, I think LinkedIn is a great, a great spot for that. And I think a lot of time can be lost on other platforms where, you know, if you put in the right time to LinkedIn and, and even consider creating content on the platform, you know, you, you can end up building a quite a strong network. And like we started on, you know, like it's a niche industry. It's still quite small. It's still very new. The network is not large. So the more that you can get yourself in front of people and have conversations and network and and talk about, you know, the value that you can provide, the more opportunity you're going to have. So, you know, like I, I anyone, you know, I just talked with someone on the phone before this call that was, you know, back in the U.S. out of Chicago that's looking to get into the industry and doing a lot of like outbound outreach on LinkedIn and getting some opportunities. And it's the other thing I suggested to her today was to, Hey, why don't you include, you know, some content creation as part of that and clean up your profile a bit, make it more land landing page, like start creating some content, start bringing people into your circle instead of always trying to attack and, and penetrate their circle, bring them into years and then start to have conversations. And, and, you know, with enough of that, I'm confident that, you know, you'll, you'll end up having the right conversation or two and finding an opportunity along the way. Yeah. And I think, again, this speaks to the differentiator between like an actual subject matter expert and someone diving in like your, your content, for example, you're not shoving our, our, your coach, your consulting down our throats. You're talking about policies. You're talking about the industry as a whole. You're talking about, why how marijuana medical marijuana has helped all these children with these things like that so i think that's a big part of it is is being there and educating other people not necessarily showing and shoving your stuff down their throat but showing you're the expert there and then yeah just building that that network naturally it just goes a long way exactly and and like i said i think it's important for you know, like even outside of the, the, um, the specific content, right. It gives people also a different way to see, you know, how do, how, how does Lee think of things? How does Lee position things? How does mm-hmm. Lee explain things? You know, like, is he, and, and like even something as basic as like, you know, the ability to show up consistently and, and this stuff, it, it all shows through as like skills, right. And people can pick up on this stuff where it's like when you're, and especially in today's world, you know, as how comp, you know, and how competitive it's gotten, you know, the more awareness you can build for yourself and your name, the more opportunity you're going to have, right? It's like, uh, it just, it's just as simple as that. And it comes down to distribution, which is why I love B2B and, 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 and enjoy this part of, you know, many different industries, but especially cannabis, but because it's all about distribution, right? And the more distribution you have, the more awareness you can build, the easier everything else gets behind that. So, you know, you got to find some way to to get in front of people. 
Yeah, well, I think that is a perfect way to wrap our episode. Before before we go, I always like to give our guests an opportunity to shout out where people can follow you, how people can contact you, anything upcoming. So, yeah, Steve, where can people find you? The number one spot, my main channel is LinkedIn, as we just kind of hit on there at the end. So you can find me there, Stephen Arthur George. Uh, post content every day on the platform. So look out for that. And then in 2024, I'm going to be launching an audio event. So a weekly audio event, uh, more focused on my Canopy Me project, with which is uh, a bit around the, you know my bridge between the personal branding and the, the cannabis industry. So excited for that. Okay. So I, can I, I have a follow-up question now. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Or are you still in stealth with that? <laughs> So it's still in, it's still in development, but the idea with Canopy Me has kind of um, evolved over the last year, right? So this is this is a project that's important to me because you know it, it really speaks to everything that we're talking about today, right? Of, of changing my career, uh, getting into the cannabis space, then using a social channel like LinkedIn to grow my my personal brand. Um, and then leading that to then being able to have the confidence to start my own company and, and start consulting. So all of that kind of comes together in, in Can It Be Me? And yeah, it's 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 about being yourself, right? And and going after what you really believe in. And so yeah, I'm excited to to help people do that and 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 grow that that uh, community within the cannabis space. Well, that sounds super exciting. I am going to be on the lookout for that. Thank you, Steve, so much for coming on, for for really diving in here. I had so many questions. I learned so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And I will see you next time on another episode of Lee to Be. Thank you, Lee. Enjoying Lee to Be? Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. Your reviews go a long way in supporting me. Thank you so much.